You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the third part of our special crypto edition of the Inside China podcast. My name is Xin Meishen. I'm a tech reporter here at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. And you're about to hear an in-depth interview I did with Vivian Ku. She's the chairwoman and co-founder of Asia Crypto Alliance, as well as a founder of the group known as Satoshi Woman. She comes from a banking background, and she's got a lot to say about the changes happening in the Hong Kong finance industry. Hope you enjoy it. Here's Vivian Ku. Okay. Um, hi, I'm Vivian Ku. I have spent a uh, majority of my career in banking. I was uh, initially early stage of my career a regulator, and uh, and then I moved into banking, doing compliance, uh, you know, for a whole nearly two decade. And in 2019, I moved into the exciting world of crypto. Mm. Uh, you know, we'll probably get onto that later, but um, of course, many ask why this drastic change. So fast forward, um, I left the crypto exchange 2021, and um, I think between now and then, I've been just doing a couple of board advisory roles, um, some in crypto and then a robot advisory company. And I also run an association called Asia Crypto Alliance. I'm the co-chair and the founder. Tell us from your perspective, how does Hong Kong benefit from uh, embracing crypto? Uh, what is it going to bring to the city? Personally, I mean, you know, in compliance, I read words and, and I'm very particular. So I feel actually with what the government in Hong Kong um, has been facilitating and, you know, pushing is more like a fintech push rather than, you know, crypto. So I think crypto is within the context of digital finance. Uh, it's within the context of DLT. So it's a blockchain technology and a digital finance that I think they're trying to promote. Of course, um, you know, since last year, you know, there have been a series of announcements. I mean, clearly, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. So I think there's been sort of a lot of things that actually that has been done that lead up to what they announced last year. But I think the, the key message really is um, they want to, I think they used the word cluster, um, you know, between fintech and Web3. So you would see, you know, the line being more blurred between crypto assets, uh, you know, sort of technology and the whole sort of community building part. And then there are a lot more different industry moving into Web3, whether it's finance, whether it's retail, uh, you know, NFT, whatnot. So, so that's kind of the broader context. And I also see that um, this is part of the broader plan to have Hong Kong sort of reinvigorate or bring back a lot of, um, you know, what it kind of lost, not not necessarily like during the crypto winter, but as part of COVID, you know, people moving out, assets and company moving out, you know. So how to make Hong Kong an exciting city again, um, you know, sort of post-COVID. The Hong Kong government announced on October mm -hmm. 31 yep, last I was there. year. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Was there? Yeah, 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 yeah. A whole range of policies mm -hmm. aimed at boosting crypto. So could you tell us what kind of major movements or changes you have witnessed in Hong Kong's crypto industry since then? So I think last year there were a lot of speculation already whether um, the government or the regulators will open crypto to re retail. So that's been a lot of talk about it. I guess the announcement in October, November really sort of in reinforces actually the, the direction that um, you know the government wanted to go. But of course, after they announced, you have FTX. Um, so it was interesting to see uh, you know the government actually came out and reinstated you know their support. But again, I would emphasize that 
the, the push from the government side is not really crypto. It's really sort of crypto in the context of digital finance and the whole development of the Web3 ecosystem. So, um, you know, between what Porsche and come out to say, what they have in the plan in terms of how much money they're going to spend in bringing talents back uh, or, you know, promoting talent and also the whole Greater Bay plan. And also slightly separated, but also related is, you know, all the things that the Hong Kong exchange have been doing, you know, listing of the first virtual asset ETF. And I think they continue to push through too, to make um, the digital assets or virtual assets market more accessible in an indirect way, because the direct way would be going directly, buying coins, you know, through exchange. Indirect way would be via in different instruments like ETFs or, um, you know, just using it as, as a class, you know, to access different products. How has the industry responded to uh, these policies? Uh, what kind of companies have allowed this in, you know, saying that we're... we're, we're I, I think they've been, you know, largely welcoming because if you look back maybe 18 months ago, um, there was a period where, you know, I'm sure, you know, yourself, you've you know, written a lot of articles about uh, people's confidence in terms of, you know, Hong Kong and, and its treatment of digital assets. So I think, you know, people started coming out of that um, sort of, myth or, or mystery about, okay, well, is Hong Kong going to do this or not? And I think what the government announcement was read as some indirect endorsement, you know, from above that, okay, we're really going to do this. So I see actually a wave of companies that actually have moved out of Hong Kong, or I don't think many of them completely 100% move out, but they started actually looking at other offices that they established. I mean, Singapore being a very prominent and, you know, pro close proximity both in location, uh, in framework, in policy. So that was a natural one. So there are companies that's restarting to look at, should they be back in Hong Kong? But then what happened in the more recent past, you know, with the actual legislation of the framework of the VASP uh, and the VATP license, you see actually things moving a lot quicker because even early on in the year, you know, it was rumored that there were AT applications like in the SFC uh, waiting, you know, broad range between China, global, you know, personally, I think um, that number may or may not shift significantly because I also hear that some companies are reassessing, you know, if they would apply because a lot of them want to wait and see because they view it's never going to be, you know, some of them, if they're bigger, if they're really like gun hold that we want to be in Hong Kong, of course, you know, those already have big presence, they would have to apply. But there are other ones that are assessing, okay, so what are the pros and cons? Are there, is it going to be limiting more of what the company does if they're a global player? I also hear a few that are assessing and just wait for other people to go first right, yeah. and see what we do later. What exactly would be their concerns um, for those who are waiting? And yeah, and, and I'm, I'm sort of obviously generalizing yeah. in terms of, um, you know, some of the key themes I hear would be, oh, is this going to change again? Mm -hmm. You know, like suddenly. Or actually, if they're reading through the sort of fine print. Um, seems quite hard to meet. If you, you kind of treat it seriously and look at all the requirements, it seemed fairly hard to um, apply. And then a third bucket is probably said, well, can we just wait for someone to do it first? And then we do some sort of strategic partnership or joint venture. I think those will be the broad buckets of what people are considering. So you already kind of touched upon this just now, but uh, could you help us recap sort of how has Hong Kong's status in the crypto space, in the global crypto space changed over the years? Yeah, so, well, I only got in 2019, but I, I kind of felt that actually the movement or, you know, it started being the thing or a thing actually probably back in the ICO days you know that because if you see a lot of companies um that are Hong Kong based you know Animoca, VSFG, Kinetic you know a lot of them they were already players you know at that time but of course you know the environment wasn't so facilitating at that time so they were just building I'm sure like there are 
people externally laughing and said, God, you know, why are you doing this? This is silly kind of thing. So I personally, after I've been in the industry, the biggest moment was initially the retail ban. Uh, you know, when the SFC came out or the government came out and said, okay, no retail, you know, it will be criminal. We're imposing all these sanctions and, and penalties, uh, you know, for people who don't comply. But at that time, um, it was unclear actually how you could comply. You know, what is it that, you know, there was no very explicit guidance uh, other than what they have for traditional banks. Mm-hmm. This so, was not long ago. This was probably 2020, 21. You know, I think that was the time when they when they did the ban. But then things moved very quickly because I remember the first time when I met with um, sort of more governmental bodies like FSDC. That was probably 2021, um, later part of that. They were already looking at, okay, how they can bridge the gap. You know, they can act as a sort of a interfacing between the industry and the regulators. So I think probably within six to nine months, there was a lot more active engagement. There was a lot of talk about was stopping, you know, the business from going, you know, without getting into too technical details, but with things like professional investor like tests, because those tests only look at how much money you have in the bank and some very narrow definition. But, um, you know, a crypto billionaire, you know, who have a lot of, you know, crypto assets, those would not fall under your professional investor test, does that make sense? So there was a lot of active discussion already at that point about should there be any adjustment, amendments? And then, of course, you know, the big, as I said, actually, things started getting really heated up, like last summer, you know, and then November. And then and the last few months was, you know, series. I, I went to a lot of you know, conferences and events, and, you know, it's quite comical that people always judge, you know, how successful or how things are based on attendance of conferences or how many conferences and events are being held, which clearly is a signal, you know, people are interested and engaging. But, um, you know, we talked about this earlier. I think we have to see how all that translates into actual business. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about something happened last year, the FTX collapse. People sort of associate uh, SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, as the face of crypto at that time. What's the reality in Hong Kong? And is the new generation of crypto entrepreneurs different or how are they different? I, I would, I mean... I would argue that people only associated the face with SPF after FTX collapse. <laughs> no, people always like looking at who are successful in, in the space. And then, of course, at different point in time, there would be different individual companies who are doing well. You know, the company I used to work with, you know, they were sort of top derivative exchange for a while. And then I think Binance, but finance has always kept fairly low key in terms of headquarters, jurisdiction. So there's probably not as much talk about it. Uh, FTX, I mean, clearly they they were very open. They were very high profile. Um, you know, they have a lot of, uh, you know, ex-governmental type support, you know, and, and I think they just a more media attraction, I think, to to the company, to the individuals. So I think that's maybe one of the reasons why people associate crypto with uh, SPF. But and then, of course, now it sort of collapsed and people always said, oh, you know, X and Y and Z should have happened. But it's always easy to look at things in hindsight about what went wrong uh, and and make sort of a general statement. Uh, so I think if you first would look at like the crypto scene now, I, I actually don't think there are a huge amount of new players per se, um, if you if I can call it that way, because I'm sure there's some that are emerging, but then many of them who are still in the space have been around for quite some time, even, you know, with OKX uh, and, and others, you know, actually they, they've been in the space. It's just that at that point when they were still in the space early, 
they were not as successful or doesn't have such a big um, company or investment. So now I think these few that are emerging, you know, the one who flies you know, BC Group, uh, you know, HashKey, OKX, they have been around for quite some time. So I would say the key difference really is because um, they've seen what happened. So I think it's just maturity, I think, of how they're going to run the business and also the whole risk infrastructure and then, you know, their appetite to deal with um, regulators and, and, you know, how they deal with retail now would be different. And again, I think crypto space, a lot of people come from finance and technology. So they have an appreciation. There was a time when I think a lot of people think that, you know, they can make a lot of money because it was just unclear in terms of frameworks and rules. But now I think that's like gone. I think unless you operate on some island that no one's going to ever interact with you, if, you, if you're dealing with more developed jurisdictions and, you know, there's a whole infantry of what each country is defining, what crypto assets is, how you deal with them. And the rules actually are, are largely similar. There is a term called crypto bro. Um, it's kind of a derisive term based on the images we see and some of the sexist behaviors that we've witnessed. Uh, you're also the co-founder of a group called Satoshi Women and you started Web3 Women. I think it's been a fascinating group. And, and if you look at like the Web3 Women kind of founding group, um, I think that group is probably more, again, more finance background because I try to draw a group in that can be a leadership group. And, you know, I, I can count like he, you know, quite a number of them who have been very successful in what they do. You know, Cynthia from Matrix Port, Annabelle Huang from Ember, you know, Karen So, she's the general counsel of OSL. So literally each um, sort of conglomerate or each so tech company or finance company, there are somebody who either are progressing into senior leadership role as a female or they're already in one. I mean, of course, compared to male, you know, there's no comparison because I think a lot of them are not from tech background. And then, you know, the finance, some in finance sort of like it in crypto, others don't. So I think there's still a broad mix, but I definitely see a lot of um, female emerging, getting interested in space, being successful in the space, and also on the tech side. Um, you know, if you look at, you know, Sandy, you know, in ZK, so there are different like protocol that I think are layering um, technology companies that are doing very well that have female leadership. So the, the view or the aspiration that I have is really to grow that population and make this a leadership kind of team that will help move Web3 forward. Mm -hmm. um, do you think Hong Kong has the potential of challenging the kind of crypto bro cliche and image and what kind of yeah I think what does the city in, in short yes because Hong Kong is very um, inclusive I mean it's a it's an international city you know it, even like the male not the male and female sort of proportion I, I feel it's a very international city it, it attracts people from sort of all part of the world they like coming to work in Hong Kong so I think just by the nature of that um, it would have a very feasible group of female that you know, are eligible, competent, and love to move into this space. So Crypto Pro, I feel, obviously, you know, I, I, my group is not some anti-pro group. We, we didn't set up because of that. We want to promote inclusivity. Um, and Crypto Pro can continue to do what Crypto Pro does. And then Crypto Queens or Crypto, you know, Sis can do whatever we want to do. I think my, my mission is really to promote more like female in the female um, crypto industry, whether it's Web3 or finance. Um, and we're doing a lot of stuff. You know, we're rolling a mentorship program out. Uh, we have done a lot of sort of live events, meeting and, you know, education. So we just hope that it will organically try to grow more. And also there have been a lot of different groups in Hong Kong. You know, they're all-star women, DAO, they're different, you know, they're DAO. And then, you know, different associations have been 
running events and promoting females. So I definitely see um, it very promising in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. How would you compare Singapore and Hong Kong's crypto markets? These, uh, <sighs> but that's like you know, that's always like a million dollar question. Everybody asks me that. I was in Singapore actually two months back, um, meeting regulators and and some companies there. I genuinely think it's very comparable because it's just a matter of timing. Because I mentioned earlier, maybe about eighteen months ago, Hong Kong was in that state that you know they were a bit um, passive. They weren't doing things that proactive. I think within that period, Singapore just came out, and I think has just done more. I think of various different reasons. You know, there were a lot of more people moving to Singapore. Um, you know, the licensing, they have approved a few more, um, you know, and they focus more on like payments, facilitating payments around Southeast Asia. They have done, you know, Project Guardian, you know, and some other sort of sustainability project. I mean, even recently, um, there was, a, you know, Hong Kong, there was a big discussion a few weeks back about opening bank accounts. So, uh, you know, the regulators and government here actually are you know, trying to do something. But if you look at Singapore, they started like last October. They have a working group. They have a group working with the police that look at, you know, so what are some of the issues why people can't open bank accounts? So I felt it's very at par. Um, it's just a nature of maybe some of the clients or some of the companies. You know, Singapore has a lot more family offices, for example. Maybe the way they set up funds and set up family structures. And then, you know, Hong Kong just participate in the North Asia kind of vein of businesses. So I think it's different. I think they're each, well, you know, Hong Kong and Singapore are each trying to use what's, a, you know, advantage to them to try to build, you know, build up the city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so your career um, in banking was all about compliance. And the biggest issue worldwide about crypto is obviously trust. And just this week, there was a big story where Reuters reported that there is evidence of commingling of funds of uh, at Binance. Uh, so what are the kind of the biggest challenges, risks that you see that are need to be addressed in the space in Hong Kong and globally? So in compliance, you trust but verify. So you never really trust without verifying. <laughs> I, th- I think that's kind of the, the principle I've always worked off. And then also people um, use this concepts or definitions very loosely. So decentralization doesn't mean deregulation. Some of the basic principle of how you run a business actually applies, whether you're in crypto or not, or digital assets, whatnot. So a fairly big piece of crypto, and I think I talked about this um, you know, in one of my recent posting too, about my view, how crypto can eventually be, you know, massively adopted is I think there are a few things that need to happen. One, it's um Bitcoin needs to be treated as a prop as a class, you know, not as an inflation hedge or otherwise. Second, it's um, you know, there was this statement that that was made in a recent conference I was in that everybody's involved but nobody's in charge. And then also thirdly is um infrastructure. So you need to have regulated players that can act as a venue so that companies can invest through them without having to worry about the operational risk. So that institution can properly hedge, can properly, you know, make market. I think until all these things done and including the infrastructure, I think it would be hard to see, you know, sort of crypto or digital assets be adopted in a, in a very big way. Mm-hmm. And some of these key principle about you know, as you mentioned before, you know, commingling of assets, taking counterparty risks. The more you know, the regulatory frameworks being developed now, you know, there are very specific requirements. You look at what SFC just came out. You know, the consultation conclusion. You know, they require you to have third-party custodian. Um, you know, it can't be with the same sort of group entity and you know, insurance arrangement. I think once all those are in place, it will mitigate the risk of what we're seeing now. I think with the companies who are not regulated in the more developed jurisdictions. Mm. 
the SFC earlier this week just finalized the rules for retail trading in Hong Kong. Um, what do you expect to happen after it comes into effect? What's your prediction for Hong Kong's crypto industry in maybe six months, uh, a year? Seriously, net very positive because people were skeptical. And, and again, I'm talking probably in general terms, but because our industry would deal with a lot of market participants. Um, I think they, they were quite pleased with what came out because it was still a question mark because, you know, the consultation was very extensive, you know, 360 plus pages. So there was a question mark of how much of the feedback that the SFC would really take. Of course, there's some that's going to be quite challenging still, but I think, you know, people are quite happy in terms of the requirements getting adjusted or amended. I think it would make it more practical. I think some of the players who were thinking about whether they go for the license or not probably will push them a bit more towards, okay, let's apply. But then I don't know actually what that does to the SFCQ who's processing the licensing. Of course, you know, I, I'm not a regulator and I don't have like crystal ball, but I think there will be, you know, maybe a dozen what what not like players who, who will be licensed. I and there will be more what you call uplift licenses because I think those are probably an easier bar because regulated players already have licenses that want to do uplift. You know, that's already a track record, that's a history, it's easier to verify and also that's this independent assessor that needs to come in to assess the applications now. So I think it would draw a lot more interest into Hong Kong, actually more than it does now. I mean, mainland China continue to ha- will have like, you know, companies who want to, or even globally, actually comes through Hong Kong to participate. I envisage there'll be more strategic partnership because it already started happening. You know, Hashkey and Civil Bank a little while back, you know, OSL and, and you know, Interactive Broker, and then the more recent one, you know, Somerly and Coina. So I think I see more of these sort of strategic partnership and probably the banks or the TradFi world. I mean, they have their own issues that they're dealing with on the banking side, but they're also looking at other infrastructure play that they can get at um, distress level. You know, you know, would that be a gateway instead of them building themselves? Can they buy? You know, do you build and buy? And, and this kind of market, you know, there are a lot of distressed assets out there that would be attractive valuation-wise. And what would you say is Hong Kong retail's appetite for crypto assets? I mean, Um, crypto is a big play and and, and it kind of largely depends on which, you know, which type of digital assets or crypto. So I think a lot of, um, you know, a a lot of those retail who got hurt last round, um, I think learn the lesson about, you know, sort of coins or, you know, what is commonly referred as the shit coins. Those actually went up a lot. I'm sure they, you know, some of them are still trading it, but it's just a matter of how much allocation because younger generation, you know, they, I mean, they're still young. I'm sure their view is, you know, they can recover in the long term. So they have a significant portion of the assets actually in trade the trading component of crypto. I think that might not be what they do like you know, next round. And also, if, you know, the coin that can be listed on a regulated platform, you know, have all this bars. So there would not be that many that get, you know, listed. So I, my sort of suspicion would be, you know, things like, you know, wallets and, and, you know, art and all that. I think there will be more of a retail acceptance, but not really the trading component. I think the trading will probably gear more towards like um, institution, you know, larger players now, just given the ability to do that on platforms, you know, you have to get full KYC, you you have to go through the hurdles, you know, you have to set up accounts, you have to know something basically, um, you know, you have to have collateral. So all that's going to come into play is looking and feeling a lot more like, you know, um, what your traditional banking would be, you know, has historically been like. And 
what would you say is the role for Asia Crypto Alliance with the uh, Hong Kong SFC's rules uh, coming into effect after June 1st? Um, Asia Crypto Alliance, well, we, we have a different a few different things that we look at. I would imagine maybe the advocacy part, um, not that we'll stop doing it, but I think we might scale back on that because the framework is out. You know, there's, of course, there's still things that we can advocate for, but I think what we focus is probably need to be a bit more specific in, instead of, because what we've historically done is because we're trying to build an interface between participants and regulators and government. I think that's, you know, now it's been, you know, big push for mass adoption. So I don't really know if that's really needed. So now it's more on, okay, specific feedback. I mean, if seriously, I've been um, talking, for example, the, to the SFC, I've been volunteering. I said, if you have task force or working group that deals with account opening, I'll be happy to like contribute because you have to see what the pain points now, because we, I think we are in a different stage now from what we were, you know, even a couple of months back. So we have your framework now. So so what is it that we can push envelope further? So it would it be the next stage I, I envision, and I, I don't know how long it would be, there will be a derivatives framework, um, but it will take time to, you know, to do. And then because the derivative market is just so big, you know, three trillion is just going to be too big to ignore. Um, and then there will be more institutions that they want to participate in, you know, options and different type of, and use actually a crypto assets at some sort of hedge, you know, other products that facilitate that. Are there going to be more funds that people can invest in? So I think that's kind of the next level of things that actually, you know, if if I was the government regulator that I would look at to see, so how is it other than, okay, we've drawn people in now, we've drawn investment, we've got a framework. So what's the next stage? What kind of business can we push through and how that would all look? So we'll be probably trying to support some of that effort if we can. Mm-hmm. And they already have a framework for the tokens themselves. And then you, you mentioned there might be derivatives. derivatives and ETF, I think ETFs, I think. ETFs, because right now, is, um, you, know, you know, exchange has, a, you know, of course, I have things that's listed. Um, there, if you read, um, there's a report actually that there was exchange push out that was in April that talks about um, at the initial stage. So I think that leaves room for, you know, would that be further expansion of what kind of virtual asset ETFs that, you know, that would be um, launched. So I think there's some indication that there's some effort that's being like put together to look at additional products. Mm-hmm. How, how do you see stable coins fit in the whole? I, and I think it's the right approach. I think there's been a lot of, look. you know, people are looking at, or at least, you know, MA and others are looking at what would be the right fit. So I think it will be, in my view, slightly slower because that's clearly not for trading, you know, and I think it would just be more for enabling, I think, to push the market further so that there's a different stream of things that actually people can invest in. And stablecoin also because of the last sort of fallout of the stablecoin on Algo, I think there's also a lot of analysis looking at, okay, what is the type of stablecoin we want to do? So I think it will be coming, but I think, again, I think that would be like a stage two, but it will continue to, you know, evolve. Great. Thanks so much, Vivian. Okay. All right. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Inside China. Keep in mind, this is one of three special episodes we're producing this week in the lead up to Hong Kong's new crypto licensing era. Don't forget, you'll get all the latest news and all the best analysis at scmp.com. My name is Ximei Shen. Bye for now.